poetry has become as important to me as any reading and contemplating I do, which is why I'm always eager to remind you about our ongoing initiative, The Poetry Radio Project. It's a place where you can discover the poetry that so many of our guests fold into their lives. And you can also delve deep into reading and listening to the many wonderful poets we've had on the show. Check out one of my favorites, Marilyn Nelson read for us, Love Song. You'll also find Naomi Shihab Nye, John O'Donohue, Laylee Long Soldier, and many, many more. All that at onbeing.org slash poetry. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. A dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. That's vintage Mary Carr, the poet and writer of salty and lyrical memoirs like The Liars Club and Lit, in which she traces her harrowing childhood in southeast Texas with a mother who once tried to kill her with a butcher's knife and her own adult struggles with alcoholism and breakdown. Mary Carr is captivating in writing and in person for her ability to give in to what is funny and wild in life's most heartbreaking moments. And she embodies this wryness and wildness in her lesser-known spiritual practice as a devout Catholic, an unexpected move she made in midlife. I started praying. I got on my knees. I mean, even I, you know, after whatever, 35 years of agnosticism, you know, when you land in a in a mental institution, <laughs> you have to say to yourself, you know, my ways of moving through the world are not succeeding. <laughs> you know, I'm, but I, I remember thinking at the time, asking this woman what she prayed for. She said, "Oh, I pray every day for a joyful day that's full of serenity." <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> really? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you can pray for that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on Being. Mary Carr lives in New York and is a professor of English literature at Syracuse University. I spoke with her in 2016. So you may know then that I start my interviews by wondering about the spiritual background of someone's childhood. And clearly your spiritual background was not religious. And in fact, the stories that you've told in your memoirs that so many people know you know, have to do with a childhood that was awash with a lot of violence and chaos, not only not only violence and chaos, but plenty of that. And so if you but if you think about what was the spiritual canvas kind of in and amidst that inside you, and I'm sure you would answer this question differently at different points in your life. But how would you think about that now? A lot of terror. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of terror and fear and suffering and loathing and self-loathing and you know it's the great thing about a really miserable childhood is the rest of your life looks like you've improved things <laughs> when really all you've done is grown up and gotten car keys and a credit card you know <laughs> but you feel like you've made some great advance right. uh, and and you have you have said poets were my first priests and poetry itself my first altar did you I think that's right yeah did you think of it that way then or or do you think of it that way in hindsight? Uh, I think I always sort of did. Mm -hmm. uh, it would make a lot of sense to Freud. I mean, it was the place I had contact with both my mother and my father, uh, is around language in a way. My father's stories and my mother's love of literature. Yeah. Which strikes me as somebody who grew up in that part of the world kind of as really unusual that your mother had that love of language. I mean, you talk about being able to calm her down or draw her out of a sulk by reciting E.E. E. Cummings or A.A. A. Milne, but that's amazing to me. I know, right? Yeah. No, she's a, she was a marvel for that place and time. And so, yeah, I mean, I it was, you know, what would I have had to be? I don't know. A hooker, a serial killer, a poet. <laughs> those are, those are, that's kind of the lineup. <laughs> right. Um, I, I heard your interview with Terry Gross, and I, I was I was so intrigued as you talked about your religious life now, and then when I started rereading re you and reading the Art of Memoir, reading you know some of your newer works and, and lit, um, it seems to me also even 
and I don't, I don't think I want to go here immediately, but that there's a sense in which many of the ways you talk about writing memoir is kind of, it, there's a spiritual discipline to that. I think that's true. I think that's really true. I mean, I, in an age when even to use the word truth, it, or even to say the word truth, it always comes now with, with um, you know, finger squiggles around it, you know, it comes with quotes around it. Yeah. As though, how dare one presume to know the truth? But I, I believed that one could. I believe that I guess for me, having such complicated feelings about my my uh, much-loved, you know, fairly troubled family, I just felt like I had to figure out what had happened and why I felt so bad, yeah. or I just wasn't going to make it. So the idea of trying to kind of even believing that there was such a thing as truth and that it could possibly in any way be knowable by a person— through self-reflection and, you know, therapy and talking to people and fasting and prayer and eventually talking to Jesus, yeah. you know, that there that there had to be some way of, that the, I believe that, you know, that the truth would set me free. I believe that. Because mm. as I said, you know, I was, I was lied to so often and with such conviction by such really talented liars, <laughs> just some really able artists. Well, and the people who were supposed to be actually teaching you the truth about life, I mean, in a perfect world, right? Right. I mean, we're all lied to yeah. by our parents. <laughs> That's it. I mean, let's yeah. face it, we're, yeah. we're all lied to, either intentionally or not intentionally. Mm-hmm. But again, in an alcoholic family, I, I think you, you start with that big lie, you know, I'm not drunk. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, you're just told that so many times, or everything's okay, Was the uh, those are the two big ones. Mm-hmm. In a family where there's a... A lot of hard drinking, you know. People are always saying, oh, it's fine, you know. It's going to be okay. No, everything's all right. But last night you were wagging firearms in our kitchen, Mom. I mean, come on. So, um, and again, my mother was a seeker. I mean, she she went back to college when I was a kid, and, you know, she studied philosophy. I mean, she spent a lot, probably too much time for somebody as moody as she was with the French existentialist, but, um, you know, and she did yoga, you know, nobody did yoga. Wow. I mean, you know, I I guess all readerly people are seekers, aren't we? I mean, is that not true? Yes. And and also attending to interior life, which is not necessarily such an American thing to do. Right. It's very unseemly. Yeah. It's very unseemly. I mean, I think of you know, Josh Shank has that great book, I think, about called Lincoln's Melancholy, about yes, Lincoln's right. depression and about the kind of and, – and I think, again, the, the blessing I, – I can see it now that I'm not in it, but the blessing of a really depressive early life and a really – I mean, I don't think my childhood – there were plenty of worse childhoods, but I think it does deepen you to, yeah. to yeah. be dark-minded. If it doesn't, yeah, and if it doesn't kill you, right? If it doesn't kill you, uh-huh. it does. And it gives you a lot of, I think, if you're lucky or if you come out the other end of it, it, it uh, it's also brings you to compassion, I think, for yeah. other people. So there's this phenomenon that you that you write about in yourself and also in your students that that when people first start writing, they're often actually not writing about the person they really are. And you had this always. Always, you had this epigraph of, from Thomas Merton to the Art of Memoir, which is you know just a very poetic way of saying. He said, "Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. I wind my experiences around myself and cover myself with glory like bandages, in order to make myself perceptible to myself and to the world, as if I were an invisible body that could only become visible when something visible covered its surface." But then do we not even – we don't know how to express that, that true self? Well, we don't know what it is mostly. I mean, yeah. I think when I'm at some point, and I, I think this comes from, a, you know, trying to meditate over a period. I still think of myself as a rank beginner, but over a period of decades I've been trying to do this. And if in those moments of terror or judgment of other people or of myself or – Thinking I know things I don't know. I mean, when I first got sober, I had this sort of 
Virgil, this kind of spiritual guide through the hell of early sobriety, mm. who would say to me when I would tell her something I was afraid of, she would say, what is your source of information? And 99% of the time it was, I thought it up. Okay. You know, I had all kinds of magical thinking. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, the process of trying to become curious in those moments of real discomfort about what's going on. Um, it doesn't always free you from suffering per se, but I don't know. I, I have a girlfriend who's a mother with young children, and she called me one day to tell me she was had lost her mind, mm. and she was incapable. She needed to call the police and check into a mental institution because she had slapped one of her children who was little, I mean, yeah. you know, five. But she said, no, no, you don't understand. I can't stop crying. I can't stop crying. I... I I've apologized. I I just, I really think I'm losing my mind. And I said to her, well, who's noticing that you're losing your mind? Right. And and second, how did you get here? Well, I haven't slept. You know, I'm working full time. I've got two kids. I haven't eaten. It's like, yeah, okay, well, Hmm. maybe have a sandwich. You know, I mean, maybe it's time to have a sandwich. You know, maybe. But just for me, that's what my, the voice of God is the voice of God never gives me a long-term plan. It never helps me with any kind of lottery number or anything. But um, that voice that says, you know, <laughs> you need to sit down and have something to eat or it's not going to be good to be you anymore. So just in that noticing self that that also is you, is God connected to that? Is God in that somehow for you or, or close to that? I think not only, not only is that also you, I think that's the real you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's the real you and the frightened, angry self is often, you know, an animal self. Yeah. A- and that's us too, obviously. I'm not trying to say that you're, you know, the, the devil made you do it, you know, and that you're somehow cut off from those other aspects of how you feel and behave. You know, you're responsible for all of it. But yeah, I, I I think for me, coming to have a place inside myself or, or my spiritual practice or going to Mass or taking communion or trying to be more mindful or praying, you know, just really trying not to kill everybody on the subway every day. I mean, that's the goal for me. <laughs> it's not lofty. I don't want to be Mother Teresa, you know. I don't want to be an asshole. <laughs> I can't say that on the radio, can I? What, what else can I say? <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the poet and memoirist Mary Carr. You spoke in a similar way in this book, Now Go Out There, actually, and the kind of subtitle is And Get Curious, which was a graduation speech, right? Graduation taken from us. Right. Commencement they, address. Can, yeah. Can you believe they gave me a, an honorary degree? I mean, I'm so undegreeable. But they. Um, yes, but yes, I can I did, actually. <laughs> I was so fun. It was really fun. I I've never dreaded anything more than that graduation speech. Why? I mean, I, Why? There had been a huge uproar that they were even having me be the commencement speaker because there had been a rumor on campus that it was supposed to be Jimmy Fallon, which was like a complete lie. But you ask, do you want like the local poet or, uh, you know, old maid school teacher, or do you want Jimmy Fallon? It'll be Jimmy Fallon every time. So um, so there were like protests, and people wrote the chancellor and said, you know, can't we afford a real graduation speaker? Do we have to have this person? No, it was terrible. It was a huge thing on the Internet around around Syracuse, like how awful this was and that I was going to be the commencement speaker. And so my level of anxiety when I was working on the speech, and then as I often do once I've worked on a talk, I just – you know, at some point you have to just let go of the outcome and you say, look, you know, if they boo and they throw things, you know, it'll last for 20 minutes and then it'll be over and, you know, I'll have an anecdote. <laughs> it'll be fine. I'll go back to my my life. Yeah. I mean, you said in this, and now go others, that the opposite of love is fear. 
And you told these graduates that fear can take that expensively educated brain of yours and reduce it to the state of a dog growling over a bone. But you did say, ask yourself, who's noticing um, how scared you are and that that's where your soul is? And if you can get curious about it, you get less scared, which is... I think I think that's right. I yeah. mean, if you can just sort of see these scary events as um, kind of practice to notice what's going on. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting because most of that feeling that you have so often when you're terrified, it really is the same feeling our, you know, Neolithic ancestors have when the saber-toothed yeah. tiger was bounding out of the... I mean, you feel like you're going to die. I mean, the feeling people have when they're heartbroken or, or they're terrified is, I'm going to die. I will die from this grief. I will die from this fear. And... Um, if you can wake up into it and look at it and just sort of say, well, yeah, I'm going to feel this way for X amount of time, what's causing this? Um, yeah, and I, something I like about the, the way you, you talk about getting real or, or, or getting in touch with your true self is also you're not, you know, you're proposing very gentle ways in, like not, you're not saying analyze it or interrogate it. You're saying, you know, just noticing, getting curious but those are soft actions. They're they're much closer and easier to get at than attacking a problem, right? <laughs> but it's also one's instinct mm-hmm. if you are afraid, yeah, is if to, you're anxious, is to make it stop, right? Right. If you're afraid, if you're anxious, if you're angry, if you're heartbroken, yeah, one's instinct around it is usually violent, right? And that interior violence is so. I mean, the problem with being judgmental, I, says one of the most judgmental people on the planet, is that the voice you use to criticize everybody else is the exact same voice you use to criticize yourself with. So, yeah, if we could just walk around in our separate little bubbles uh, throwing lightning bolts at people who got our parking places or got ahead of us in Starbucks, um, yeah, I, I suppose. But there is something about trying to find a gentler way to respond to what normally makes us feel, or makes me anyway, have a violent reaction, which is get me out of here, get me away from this, make this stop. Yeah. If you can find a way to occupy it. Uh, it's also, I, I think you find yourself saying uh, true things. I remember when I first met my agent and I was a young writer and I wanted so desperately to have an agent and to write a memoir and be able to buy a Toyota. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like that's what I wanted was be able to buy a used car but not have to take public transport to my kids after school. Hmm. And and I just remember her saying to me, oh, you should write a memoir. And I was like, yeah, well, I don't know how to do that. And she says, well, you just write a proposal and send it to me. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm I'm a poet. I don't know what that would look like. And I would never have said that. Instead, I would have faked that I knew what she was talking about. And then as the date came when I was supposed to give it to her, I would have found a reason not to do it or to get drunk or to, Mm -hmm. you know, not show up, just not even try in a way. Before you met her, before you really embarked on this career of writing or maybe even really saw yourself as a writer, you pretty much... I don't know. There's somewhere that you you note the connection between breakdown and breakthrough. Um, <laughs> right. Is it a nervous breakdown or a nervous breakthrough? Yeah. That's right. That's a good question. Yeah. Because um, you kind of you had both, right? Well, I think every nervous breakdown is a nervous breakthrough <laughs> if you let it be. Yeah. I really do. I really believe that. Yeah. I believe that it's the old Hemingway saw of you know all of us are broken and some of us get stronger in the broken places. Yeah. I mean, here's something else you said. It You called the place you went the mental Marriott. Um, it was. In, the, in this graduation speech, now, which isn't now this book, now go out there, you wrote, The loony bin is where I learned that as deep as a wound is, that's how deep the healing can be. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you think of it that way, I mean, however high the fever is that you have, when it breaks, you're you're that much... You've come that much further forward. And the sense of resilience one has, I think, 
I mean, I'd spent my whole life, my mother, you know, was in a loony bin when I was little. I spent my whole life thinking, I'm going to go crazy like my mother. And then my kid was, I don't know, three, and I went crazy like my mother. And um, there I was, you know, checking into a mental institution. It was such a relief. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, but I got there, and it was, you know, it was a lot of codependent nurses asking me how I was feeling and <laughs> trying to make me little cups of tea and, and uh you know, sitting around rooms with people, moving your Monopoly tiles real slow. I mean, it was a restful, quiet place where I got to say, yeah, this is, it's hard to be me. It's really, it's been hard to be me, everybody. Remember I was saying that before? Well, this here we have external evidence that I, that I'm, uh, I might not be up to it. Yeah, and the word quiet actually comes up a lot when you're writing about that time. And there were, there were a lot of hard things you were having to face. Your marriage was failing, but... In quite a few places, you use the word quiet. I think there's this one place I think you say that there, you know, you started to write differently, that there was a polished quiet around the writing, which is such a lovely image. Um, I think I just got, you know, that idea of trying to say something small and simple and as true as possible. Yeah. Really, in some ways, starting to write about what I wanted to write about when I was in the in the fourth grade, I mean, I, I have that journal from 1965, so I was 10 years old, where I say, you know, when I grow up, I will write one half poetry and, and one half autobiography. And <sighs> and um, what else do I say? I say, I'm not very successful as a little girl. When I grow up, I will probably be a mess mm. or something like that. And instead of trying to act like I knew what was going on, to write as if I were a mess, uh, which is how I felt. Mm. There just felt like there was less posing to it. I mean, obviously, when you write anything, you're constructing a voice and you're constructing a self and there's artifice to it. Um, You're trying to make the sentences sound more interesting than you are in your normal life. So, um, But I I did feel like I got closer to who I really was at some point. And and I stopped trying to sound like Nabokov, say, and started (laughs) trying to sound like you know, who's this genius and started trying to sound like this, you know, aborigine from East Texas. <laughs> I was with, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was with, do you know Sylvia Borstein? She's a Buddhist teacher. She's no. uh, she's wonderful. She's she's on the West Coast. And um, I did a little bit, just a, some sitting with her, and uh, she introduced this concept which seemed so radical to me which was about not so much having a mantra or even following your breath, but about sitting and just kind of noticing, taking Mm. in the natural peace and ease of your mind. Okay, I know, and that's how I felt, right? Because (laughs) you're like the natural peace and ease of my mind. Well, so, and, uh, you know... That was such a crazy, you know, just such a foreign idea to me. But then if you think about it that way, right? Like if you you think that all the noise and all the chaos actually is, you know, something you're doing, that it wasn't there. It's not preexistent. It doesn't have to be that way. And I was thinking about that as I was reading you and reading you about being at the Mental Marriott and what settled. It feels like you started to... That natural peace and ease of your mind, which you've never been able to allowed to experience, uh, was present to you in a way, or at least I mean, well, I think I in praying. moments, right? Do we? You started I, praying, I, yeah. I started praying. Mm-hmm. I got on my knees. I mean, even I, you know, after whatever thirty-five years of agnosticism, uh, you know, when you land in a in a mental institution, <laughs> you have to say to yourself, you know, my ways of wor- of moving through the world are not succeeding. Yeah. You yeah, know, I'm, I'm I'm in custodial care. Right. People won't let me have sharp knives. There's a reason yeah. uh, that people are looking at me with concern. So, mm-hmm. um, but I, I remember thinking at the time, asking this woman what she prayed for, and I would pray to stand it. I would pray to let me get through a day. Let me just get through this day without killing myself or anybody else. And I remember this woman saying, I, I thought of that when you said, she said, I said, what do you pray for? She said, oh, I pray every day for a joyful day that's full of serenity. <laughs> really? Yeah, right. <laughs> you can pray for Tell that? another one, yeah. 
<laughs> well, so what happened when you—I want to know what happened with Sylvia Borstein when you started— Well, okay, so once she told this story, um, which to me also I couldn't stop thinking about, which was about, you know, 20 years ago, she was watching Larry King interviewing a swami, you know, some kind of wise man. And Larry King, after talking to this man for a while, he leaned forward and he said to him, how did you get it so quiet in there? And the Swami said, it is quiet in there. We make it noisy. So, so I'd been thinking about that for a couple of days. And then comes this morning where she says, all right. She said, today, all I want you to do is just kind of feel the natural peace and ease of your mind. And it was, you know, I had my story is different from yours, but you know, I also that's not even something I ever probably wanted or thought would be interesting for one thing, right? Well, right. It um, sounds boring. Yeah, it sounds boring. But it was, it's, it's actually there, right? I mean, I don't think, I, you know, I couldn't hold it for more than a few minutes, but um, it's up in there. Yeah, it's up in that there. Quiet, it is that peace <laughs> and ease. Well, it's like it's elemental, right? It's like all these layers are on top of it, but. Um, but seriously, when you know those descriptions you have in, in in lit of then you know your marriage is troubled, but even in the midst of that, you're taking it in differently, right? Yeah, I I love that. I, I mean, I love that thing Thomas Keating says about uh, practicing uh, mindfulness, and mm. that you, it's sort of like there's a bunch of water that has mud and silt in it, and the longer you practice the more that just kind of settles to the bottom. Mm, mm -hmm. And you don't feel any peace. You might practice for days and weeks, and it's just cloudy and noisy. And he says, what you don't realize is that healing is happening. Mm. That that stuff, by doing that, you are settling it. But you don't notice it because it hasn't settled yet. You have to just, that how, how difficult just to keep sitting there. Yeah. Yes. And unfamiliar. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Because I would rather, you know, mm -hmm. snort cocaine and, you know, <laughs> make out with the FedEx guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You can listen again and share this conversation with Mary Carr through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the poet and memoirist Mary Carr, who's beloved for her books like The Liars Club and Lit. Less well-known is the way writing, for her, is a spiritual practice. The story of how you that kind of falling apart and I think and becoming spiritually awake and I don't know whether you would have called it that or, or not and becoming a writer um, and then also in that same chapter being baptized in the Catholic Church at 40. Well, yeah, I mean that was, was some years after that. I okay. think I was in the bin in 1990 so it was maybe six years later. Okay. So I've been mm -hmm. I've been practicing. I've been meditating and praying for okay. four or five years before my son came in in his little Spider-Man pajamas and said, I want to go to church. And I said, darkly, why? And he said, to see if God's there. Yeah. You know, which was kind of the only sentence he could have said that would have got me up off my butt, mm. away from the New York Times and that bagel, and uh, into a church somebody told me we could go to, you know. Yeah. You made this kind of public confession of your Catholicism in Poetry Magazine in 2005, and you write about how poetry always seemed intellectually respectable, uh, where religion wasn't. Oh, oh yeah. Right. I mean, being, yeah, being a Catholic is like being, yeah, right. you know, oh, my God. Uh, yeah. So it's, even it's so, confessing your, your Catholicism in Poetry Magazine was uh, oh yeah 
It was anathema. I mean, that's where, you know, that's where T.S. Eliot first published Proof Rock. That's where mm. all the dark and, and uh, you know, French-influenced symboliste for the past century uh, blazed a trail into existential misery. <laughs> I mean, you right, know, for, right. for me to come in and be Catholic, oh, my God. It was bad enough being a Texan and then a redneck <laughs> and then not educated, and then this just proved out all my detractors, you know. Oh, yeah. Here's what you wrote. To confess my unlikely Catholicism in poetry, feel, <laughs> I think we can put this on public radio, feels like an act of perversion kinkier than any dominatrix could manage on HBO's Real Sex Extra. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot I wrote that. Gosh. How dare I? But there is such... Um, oh, what's the word I want to use? I mean, poetry and prayer and liturgy are right. so much of a piece, right? I mean, right. they're so kindred to each other. And I mean, I remember when I first went to the Catholic Church, which I did, I took my son. He was the one who wanted to go to church. And I, I sat with a stack of papers and graded them in the back. I had a latte. I'm not even making this no. up. I brought mm-hmm. a latte. I sat in the back. And wow. he was in Sunday school, and I was just cynically there uh, marking time. And... Um, Something about the faith of the people. It wasn't the spectacle or the, you know, Walter Pater and all those aesthetes, you know, always talked about the grandeur and the ritual and all the gold stuff and and all of that. None of that I cared about. I mean, I care about more now maybe just because I've gotten used to it. But at the time, I was kind of repelled by it. But just people sang their prayers. People sang... You know, please pray for my yeah. daughter who's having surgery. People bringing hope and terror into a public forum and saying, I'm afraid and I, I need these things to happen for in order to go on. And, and isn't that what poetry is? I mean, poetry is that uh, place for the most disturbed among us, you know, try to find the most exalted language. Uh, to convey those hopes and those despairs, you know, or yeah. that desperation. I'm curious about, as a poet and a writer, if there are parts of the scriptural text or passages that that inform you or that you work with or that you get inspiration from. Yeah, I mean, I read the liturgy every day. You do? Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's so cornball, isn't it? I read the liturgy and... Um, yeah, I mean, my favorite psalm is the hanging psalm. I think I, I think I, I write about it in in uh, in lit. Um, I found it in my mother's childhood Bible, marked in blue chalk. Oh yes, right. Such a beautiful psalm. You know, cleanse me with hyssop. You know, is it mm. hyssop, hyssop, whatever mm-hmm. the hell it is? Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Take away my stone heart, and give me a new heart. I mean, what is that? But saying, but. Um, make me present. Yeah. And I remember that part in the book where you kind of discovering those passages underlined in your mother's young hand. Her little bitty baby hand, you know, from like 19, you know, 30 or something. Mm -hmm. And then me finding it, Mm -hmm. you know, in like 1999, 98, whatever Mm -hmm. it was. I know, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I want to read this um, from St. Augustine's City of God, which you put at the top of the chapter, of one of the chapters in Lit, which talks about where, where you're talking about becoming religious. Um, Late have I loved you, O beauty, so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you, for behold, you were within me and I outside, and I sought you outside, and in my unloveliness fell upon those lovely things which you have made. You were with me, and I was not with you. I was kept from you by those things. Yet had they not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called and cried to me to break open my deafness, and you sent forth your beams, and you shone upon me and chased away my blindness. You breathed fragrance upon me, and I drew in my breath and now do pant for you. Isn't that great? I got (laughs) chills when you read that. And now do pant for you. Good old St. Augustine. Boy. <laughs> Probably our first sex addict, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, that and was actually, my fa- 
Yeah, it was my favorite line of his, give me chastity, Lord, but not yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, which is, an, is a good segue to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is your notion of sacred carnality in the art of memoir. It's a little bit of a stretch from St. Augustine being the first sex addict, but, but I do love that language and talk about what you, what you are thinking when you talk about sacred carnality in the art of memoir. What I liked about the Catholic Church that I didn't find in, in uh, you know, say in the Protestant tradition, um, there's a body on the cross. Um, yeah. Even just being in Mass that you stand up and kneel down, that you move in unison, that I know a lot of cradle Catholics complain about how sheep-like you feel or they're like dumb cattle or or something like that. But I sort of found it like it's like being in, you know, hip-hop class. <laughs> you know, when you move like everybody, you kind of feel like you are like them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the idea of uh, that we're hunks of meat, you know, in carne, yeah. you know, in meat. Um, mm. That it's not metaphorical, the idea of Jesus and the Eucharist. It's not a metaphor that you're going to be renewed. It's it's not a metaphor of his body or his teaching, quote unquote, or his love or whatever. It's his body. Yeah. It's so lurid. Um, and I remember looking at the at the body on the cross and saying to my son that I don't even remember whether I ever wrote about this or not, but I remember looking at it before we were baptized and saying, you know, I don't get this whole crucifixion thing. It's so awful. I mean, this suffering, beaten, you know, critter, you know, nailed up there. It's just so gross. You know, why don't they just have, you know, you say the jump rope rhymes and then you're redeemed. And my kid, who was young, like maybe, I don't know, eight or nine, said, who would pay attention to that? Right. You know, and he said, this is like uh, pulp fiction. Um, hit my mother, the one time I left him with her, had let him watch pulp fiction when he was like seven years old. <laughs> and he said, this is like pulp fiction. It's just like, you know, everybody is going to gawk at this. Right. And And then I suddenly thought, what else would we pay attention to? As human beings, but this grisly, awful, morbid thing. You're not going to look at that and say, oh, you don't know about suffering. You're God. What do you know about suffering? You're going to look and say, oh, you were a hunk of meat like me? Oh, wow. That's a a radical, that idea of descending theology of of the spirit being in this, these hunks of flesh. It's a, it's a, wow. It's a big deal. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with the poet and memoirist Mary Carr. We talked a little bit about truth when we started speaking a little while ago, and how what a kind of troublesome concept it is for modern people, whether there is any such thing as truth. And as a memoirist, the truth that you're remembering at any given moment is shifting depending on who you who you have become, right? What you can right. see. Right. We're talking about something that is, I mean, even the incarnation, especially the incarnation, is on the one hand the most literal, concrete, elemental image you could have, but it's absolute mystery too. But it's in right. but in Catholicism, it's it's in the realm of truth. It's just so I mean, how do you how I mean, I wonder if you have conversations about things like this. Um with people who aren't religious and who are, but who are very sophisticated and intellectual, and both, yeah. I've, I've done both. But I, I remember before I did um, the Ignatian exercises, mm-hmm. which I did like probably around two thousand ninety eight. Um, it was very all very metaphorical for me. Yeah. It was all very groovy, kind of new agey. Resurrection was, you know, starting over in some kind of hippy dippy way, and. In Ignatian spirituality, there's a thing you do where you compose a scene with your body, with all the senses. Um, the, the compose is the um, is the way Ignatius, Saint Ignatius, writes about it. It's like, you, what can you? If you're at the Nativity, if you're at the Crucifixion, what can you smell? 
What do you touch? What does the cloth feel like on your skin? What do you, you know, hear? Um, what do you feel? Um, you you try to put yourself bodily, right. using your senses into passages from the scripture. It's a very powerful practice uh, to take a passage from you know scripture and try to. Ask the Holy Spirit to put you somewhere, to place your mind and your senses in another place. I mean, it's a very radical, dangerous kind of prayer to make. And I did this over 30 weeks, um, and they give you a lot of different methods of prayer. And somewhere in there, all of the stuff that had been metaphorical became very actual for me. Mm-hmm. The idea of of uh, my sense of Jesus. I didn't like Jesus when I became Catholic. I I came in on the Holy Spirit, mm. um, and then I got that sense of Jesus that um, I just noticed that the people who are always doing you know running the soup kitchens and taking care of the babies from El Salvador and bringing in orphans you know doing all the good stuff and who don't seem really angry and crazy and kind of pissed off. Mm-hmm. and really pious. They seem kind of realistic, always talked about Jesus all the time. So I thought, I've got to get on this Jesus boat. You know, I've got, I've got to get it with this Jesus program. And somewhere in there, all of that, became, I, I just found that I was able to practice it. Do I doubt? All the time. Mm-hmm. Sure, there are days that I wake up. I mean, to me... Being a Catholic is like any spiritual practice. It's a practice. It's not something you believe. It's not doctrine. Doctrine has nothing to do with it. It's a set of actions. Yeah. You know, everybody talks about the doctrine. Do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? What do you do on a day? Yeah. You know, do you get on your knees? Do you try to practice charity? Do you try to apologize for your mistakes? Are you trying to live a life uh, that you know, is less shameful than the one the day before. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know. So I think I think that idea of sacred carnality comes in again that you're talking about embodied truth, the which is apprehended and lived. And how are you gonna act? I mean people talk to yeah. me all the time. I'm friends with Philip Roth who's you know, obviously doesn't believe in God, but mm-hmm. He said, well, you know, it's easy. he's 83, he talks about dying. He said, well, it's easy for you. You know, you're, you know, you're 60, you're Catholic, you believe in this afterlife. I'm like, look, I don't think, uh, you know, the veil is going to be lifted and I'm going to be, you know, flying through the air with a harp, you know, with my mommy and daddy. I mean, that, I, I do believe there is something that happens after death. I don't know what it means. And it's not my business, it's not what I'm supposed to be thinking about right now. I'm I'm just not in charge of that. I'm having a hard enough time just getting through the day. So for me, it's very, uh, it's all about practice and practicality and trying to be awake. And that means getting under that fear and anxiety. I mean, for me, being Catholic or having a meditative or spiritual practice is all about just trying to be guided by something bigger than the part of me that wants to, you know, French kiss my FedEx guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just does. I need help. I need help, Krista. <laughs> so, you know, you're so hard on yourself um, in your writing and all, all across your writing, you describe yourself as neurotic, nail-bitey. That's a good, um, big adjective. Worrier. I'm a worrier. Yeah. I'm a fretter. Yeah, Fredder. And and I mean, you know, even what you just said, you're so attentive to the struggle of being alive and, I don't know, to say being true to whatever your true self is. But I I do wonder, uh, and I guess I ask this kind of hopefully, I'm just, when I say this, like, I, I think um, as somebody who reads you, I... It's hard to read how hard you are on yourself, right? So, Oh, but can I say I think yeah. I'm less hard on myself than I was well, even when I wrote That's my what last I wanted book. to ask. I wanted to ask yeah. if as you as you get older if you're becoming kinder to yourself. <laughs> I've got to tell you, I I would not trade the age I am now. Mm. 
I would not be younger. I would not be a week younger than I am. I because I do feel I'm I've uh you can't be compassionate to other people unless you're compassionate to yourself. Yeah. You can't love other people unless you love yourself. Unless you have empathy for yourself and your own suffering and your own peccadilloes, you're not going to have it for anybody else. So, yeah, I mean, it, it took me a long time, obviously, to come to that, and I go in and out of it. But yeah. I have a lot more presence and a lot more joy. I eat a lot more chocolate. I mm. I don't know. I mean, my, my head is a lot quieter. Mm. After all of this, you know, the 30 years of prayer, the in sobriety, the 20 years of being Catholic, the, you know, uh, I marvel and wonder a lot. Mm. I think I spend a lot of time kind of astonished uh, by the human comedy. I mean, the hilarity of it and the beauty of it and just the simple nobility of most people trying to get by. Yeah. It's a pretty thing to watch. Mm-hmm. The last line of The Art of Memoir, you write, none of us can never know the value of our lives or how our separate and silent scribbling may add to the amenity of the world, if only by how radically it changes us one and by one. You're writing to other people, but you know that speaks also to to the fact that even as you do that work you're doing on getting by, you know, trying to be better today than yesterday, there's there is also this there's this social good. There's this larger there are these larger ripple effects that get set in motion even by something. I mean, this is kind of a great mystery of life. Even even by something like writing memoir about the very particular world in which you grew up, the very particular parents you had. Right. What. Faulkner would call your little postage stamp of reality. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's one thing I say to my friends who are atheists, you know, I say, look, why don't you, I mean, you think I'm so full of horse dookie. Why don't you pray every day for 30 days and see if your life gets better? And my guess is that it will um, just because if you think, I mean, you know, let's say there's not a God. Let's say I die and there's not a God and the worms eat me and that's the end of it. Daring to hope every day. It's much more radical, I think, to hope than to live in the despair I was born to. I think it's much more dangerous. I remember asking Tobias Wolff when he saw his movie of this boy's life, you know, that great memoir. Was it hard to watch? I watched it. I sat behind him and his family and his mother was there. And I said, boy, I said, that was so, I cried. I said, that was so hard for me. Was it hard for you to watch? He said, oh, it was really hard. I said, what was the hardest? And I was thinking, you know, when his stepfather is beating him and he's a young Leonardo DiCaprio, he said, oh, no, that didn't bother me at all. He said, it was the hope. Mm. It was when we're singing Christmas carols thinking, oh, this is going to be great. Mm. And we have have this awful, awful family. <laughs> right. And, and uh, <laughs> it's much more radical, much more daring, and much more dangerous to hope. I think you've said similar things that it's, easier to write about those terrible, dramatic moments and harder to write about tenderness. Oh, yeah. Uh, happiness writes, r- yeah, happiness writes white, as the de Montherland quote. It, mm. it doesn't really show up on the page. Mm. Well, I feel like you've said this in a number of ways, but I, I do want to just kind of ask as we close, um, how you would start to put words around this vast question of you know, what this um, sweep of your experience as a memoirist with the life you've lived um, as a poet and just as a human being, like what, what you, you know, how you would start to talk about what you're, you've learned or are learning still about what it means to be human. Maybe that surprised you as you've gone along. Uh, there's more joy than I know. Hmm. And uh, the less scared I am, the more joy there is. Um, the less in my head I am, the more south of my neck I live my life, the more yeah. awake I am, the more just simple joy there is. Um, 
people always talk about the sunset and all that. So I don't get any of that. I don't. I have zero feeling for nature, but just you know, watching the old lady with the walker on my way to the studio, you know, get off the bus in front of me and just watching how it was just so heroic. I was just looking at it thinking this is, you know, Homer wrote about this. I mean, mm-hmm. just somebody struggling to to uh, move down the damn road, you know, with all this effort all by her little, little ancient self. Good for her. You know, it was just pretty to watch. is the Jessie Truesdell Peck Professor of English Literature at Syracuse University. Her books include The Liars Club, Lit, Now Go Out There, and The Art of Memoir. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Malka Fenevesi, Aaron Farrell, Jill Ganas, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bertina Davis, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, and Kristen Lynn. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the Henry Luce Foundation in support of public theology reimagined, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.